Amen. Luke chapter 19 is our sermon text for this morning. Continue our journey through the book of Luke as Jesus has the final stages of his journey to Jerusalem. Luke 19, beginning in verse 28. This is God's holy word, authoritative for us, his people. Let us give our attention to its reading. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Tell him, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. Have you ever known someone that has two characteristics or facts about them that seem somewhat to be in contradiction. For instance, maybe uh, one kid in school never tries in his work, never does his homework, never seems to put forth much effort, but he always seems to get better grades than just about everyone else. One person stays fit while eating whatever they want, whenever they want. Perhaps in a less annoying sense, You know someone with very little money, and yet somehow they remain very gracious and very generous and very giving. When things like this happen, uh, even the ones that kind of annoy us, it strikes us with a sense of wonder. Why is that? How can these two things that are contradictory, how can they both exist in the same person at the same time? And that dynamic, striking wonder and really striking us with a sense of awe, is what's going on here in this passage in Luke. This passage is meant to place Jesus before us, and namely, both the majesty of Jesus as God and the meekness of Jesus as man in order to produce awe in all those who believe in him, who trust in him, and who worship him. So here's our life-transforming reality this morning. As we grow in our knowledge of both the meekness and the majesty of Jesus. We will marvel at the king, we will delight in his kingdom, and we will cherish the church. We will marvel at the king, we will delight in his kingdom, 
and we will cherish the church. And we ask God's help to grow in all of these things as we consider three titles of Jesus, not prophet, priest, king, but Lord, King, and Savior. That's what this passage shows us about Jesus. He is Lord, He is King, and He is Savior. First, He is Lord. When we say that Jesus is Lord, we're not saying that He just has some measure of authority. We're not saying that He is the the most glorious of the created beings by God. No, we are saying that He Himself is God. He is Lord of Lords. And that's something that we see on display in this passage. We see it on display in how he is, he is weaving everything together so that he might fulfill the Father's will. In going to the cross, we've been saying since chapter 9, Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem and he's not going to turn to the left or to the right. He knows what his mission is. And so he goes to Jerusalem to fulfill his mission. We see it in the way that he knows what the disciples will find. Uh, people who don't believe that the Bible is inspired by God, but still write commentaries about the Bible, say that, oh, well, Luke just exaggerates the story here to make Jesus seem more divine. Uh, But no, Jesus knew exactly what his disciples would find when he sent them ahead. He said, you will find a colt tied there. It will be one on which no one has ever ridden. And here's what you say to anyone who asks you what you are doing. Tell them the Lord has need of it. You see, Jesus possesses knowledge that only God would have. We're told throughout the Gospels, he knew the thoughts of his enemies. We are told that he knew what was in man. We are told that he knew from the beginning who would believe in him and that he knew who would betray him. He is God. He is the Lord. So the disciples find all of these things just as Jesus told them. And what Luke is doing in this passage is is he is continuously setting before us the majesty of Jesus right next to the meekness of Jesus. And notice what he does here. You have to notice what he does with this title, Lord. It's something that doesn't come out to us in our English translations, but we'll make note of it here. So these disciples go on ahead. Jesus waits by the Mount of Olives. They go find a colt just as Jesus has instructed them. They untie it. And then we read that the owners of this colt say to the disciples, Why, what are you doing? Which seems a very natural reaction when you're standing there and someone is taking something that belongs to you. The Lord has need of it, they say. But what Luke does here, he says that the disciples say the Lord has need of it. The word for owners of the colt here is the same word for Lord. It's the Greek word kurios. So you might gloss it by saying, the lords of this cult said, what are you doing? Why are you taking this? It belongs to us. And the disciples answer saying, the Lord has need of it. So the word for Lord in Greek can certainly be used for owner. And it is used that way many times. But what Luke is doing is situating all of these realities right up against each other so that we notice the majesty of Jesus and the meekness of Jesus. See, he is the Lord of all. He has created all things. He, and he comes to this world which he has created, which all things exist by him and for him. So he claims this cult as the Lord because it all belongs to him. But then we ask, but why does he need to send his disciples ahead to take something that belongs to these other people? 
It's because he walked through this world without so much as a place to lay his head. He did not walk through this world stockpiling possessions for himself. He did not take everything that he needed. In that day, and and certainly even in today, kings and rulers of the earth, uh, they would have, uh, in that day, stables full of horses reserved for them to use whenever they wanted. Perhaps ones that had never been ridden by anyone else. And today you can extrapolate that out and see what the kings and rulers of the earth would use today. So Jesus has divine knowledge. He knows exactly what his disciples will find. He claims this cult for his own use. But he does so as one who has nothing for himself. He who is rich became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. Majesty and meekness. Power and poverty. That's what Jesus is doing here. And he's orchestrating all of these events so that he might obey the Father's will and go all the way to the cross with his sovereign power, with his divine knowledge, obeying the Father's will, and yet showing that he is the Lord indeed. He is Lord. Secondly, he is king. He is the king. Specifically, he is the king of the kingdom of God. And we have seen how, how huge this is in the Gospel of Luke. It's that theme that's woven all throughout. Perhaps it's certainly not the only thing we learn in the Gospel of Luke, but one of the most important things about the Gospel of Luke is this idea of the kingdom. And Jesus being the king here in this triumphal entry passage, it, th- this is a big part of what he is showing everyone. I, I am the king. I am the one whom God has appointed to rule over the kingdom of God. This is drawn out by several parts of Old Testament fulfillments. Perhaps quite famously, we know that Zechariah chapter 9 says that the king of the kingdom, the Messiah, will come and he will be humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's what's being fulfilled here. So as you may know, in the Gospel of Matthew, we read that actually Jesus sends the disciples ahead and they go and they retrieve a donkey and a colt, bring both of those back to Jesus, and he rides on both of them. Luke's account is closer to Mark's here, and they both just focus on the colt. So you wonder, you say, okay, why is Matthew's account different than Luke's and Mark's? It doesn't mean that they are wrong, or that one is right and the the others are wrong, nor are they in conflict, but rather they highlight different things. And this is often what the gospel accounts are doing. They're drawing out different things about Jesus. The gospel of Matthew, written so that uh, we might know and recognize that Jesus is the Messiah who fulfills all of the the, the prophecies of the Old Testament, so that he is, is put forth as truly the one that the Old Testament spoke of. And that's why Matthew is concerned with that precise fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Luke and Mark focus on the kingship of Jesus, and certainly for uh, their own reasons. But they're focusing on kingship. In Numbers 19 and Deuteronomy 21, it says that a king is to ride on a horse upon which no one else has ever ridden. And Jewish tradition and law said that once the king rides on that horse, no one else is to ride on it from that point forward. So Jesus knows exactly what he is doing. And everyone around him would realize what he is doing. Go get this colt. It is one upon which no one has ever ridden. And this passage actually resonates a bit of an allusion to 2 Kings chapter 9, 
where Jehu proceeds as king and, and the people of Israel throw their cloaks down on the road, a sign of great reverence and respect. But again, don't miss what Luke does here, specifically with the, with the idea of the cloaks, because you have uh, the, the, the people standing by throwing their cloaks down on the road, uh, immense respect and reverence for this figure, and yet there are cloaks that are being thrown on the colt, which was a sign of poverty, not being able to afford the necessary equipment even to saddle your horse. So you throw your cloak down just to make it a bit more comfortable. You see that meekness and the majesty right against one another. We take stock of all these things and we say, okay, so what are we supposed to do with all of this then? The power and the poverty, the meekness and the majesty. Well, certainly we take a good look at our King Jesus We begin to understand a lot more about salvation and his kingdom. See, he is the Lord who owns it all. It all belongs to him, right? He walked through this world as the one who would inherit all things, the one who had created all things, and yet he needs to appoint and use the colt, the horse of someone else, so that he might ride into Jerusalem to fulfill the prophecy To show everyone that he was the chosen one of God. The son of the most high. And even while he does this, he he is greeted. We we call this the triumphal entry. So there is a sense in which there's this recognition of the kingship of Jesus. But we also must admit that his reception is a bit understated for the king of kings and the lord of lords. Now certainly this is a, a public entrance. And it needs to be in order that things would be set in motion so that the leaders of Israel would want to find a way to destroy Jesus. But this is not the glorious entrance that the king of kings deserves. Certainly this is not the glorious entrance that Jesus will enjoy when he comes again. So it's understated, but he does this willingly, in submission to the Father's will. He does this for sinners. He does this for you and for me. He knows exactly where he is going. He knows exactly where this leads. He knows exactly what he deserves. He deserves glory and honor and praise. But he is going to receive punishment, beatings, mockery, and death. So this passage compels us to behold, to behold the beauty of the God-man. To behold the beauty of Jesus, glorious yet lowly. Lord of all, but no place to lay his head. He knows the end from the beginning, and so he knowingly rides into Jerusalem, welcoming death, and all to save poor and wretched sinners, so that they might be reconciled to God. Not hungry for power, not lusting after that which indeed rightly was his own, but laying down his life. I must admit that I I needed this reminder, I needed this encouragement especially after this past week in our country. I admit that sometimes I get a bit too caught up in, in, in certain things going on in our government. I have a bit of a, a, a hobby of reading things. I'm especially interested in uh, the judiciary. So I was following a lot of the things happening this past week. And I was struck by, uh, well, like many people, struck and perhaps floored with how willingly... Uh, people, elected officials, may ruin people's lives and families' lives and multiple families' lives in order to, to gain the upper hand in some 
political gain. The will to power and seeing how people lust after more and more power and seeing how the will to power is cloaked in these ethical claims. This person is bad, so give me, grant me the power that I want and I'll make sure to take care of it for you. Floored with how willingly people play these kinds of games and it shows you the depravity of the human heart. It shows you the brokenness of this world. I was struck by, there was a few truth tellers in that room this week. I was struck at the end of the proceedings, one of the people spoke up, reflected on Matthew 16. He said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? What what does it gain you? What does it profit you if you gain the whole world and you lose your soul? And how many people in this world since, since the garden have done all they could to gain the whole world and yet they have lost their soul? But what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? Look at the kind of king that he is. Did he have a right to the ultimate throne of of power? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. In fact, he had that power and that glory, and he left it. When Satan offered to Jesus all of the kingdoms of the world, he offered to Jesus the very world which Jesus himself had made. All things were created by him. And for him. Now, in the wisdom of God, it was such that Jesus would receive that kingdom in in a glorious way after the cross and the resurrection. But this is the world, the very world which Jesus has created. But how does he ascend to that throne, that name above all other names that that the Father bestowed on him? Does he get there with a lustful power grab? Does he get there by destroying the lives of others? Does he get there by taking out all who stand in his way? No. He does it with injury to himself. Psalm 15. He's reminded of the words of Psalm 15. Who is the kind of man who can ascend the hill, the mountain of the Lord? It's the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. And and what does the man with clean hands and a pure heart do? Psalm 15, he swears to his own hurt and he does not change. He swears to his own hurt and he does not change. That's the covenant of redemption. The triune God covenanting together how redemption would be accomplished to claim back lost and broken sinners. The Son covenants to make a way for redemption, swearing to his own hurt. You think of the the book of Genesis, uh, Genesis 15, where God shows Abraham the extent of of his grace, the extent of this covenant that he has made with him. Uh, The animal parts are severed and God passes through them in order to say, before I fail to make good on this promise, this would happen to me. And Jesus, the one who can ascend the mountain of the Lord, the one who can offer pure and acceptable and perfect worship before God, clean hands and a pure heart, those clean hands and pure heart which we need, which we need to, to be given by faith and through faith. Jesus has that because he swore to his own hurt and he does not change. So in a world where virtue, character, where these things are fading more and more, where the inherent, inherent value of life and and the dignity of human life has been stomped on for decades, it may seem that the only thing that remains in this world is power and who has it. Power and who has it. 
But it's because of that that we need to marvel at the king. We need to marvel at the king. I found one person's words particularly encouraging, and I took his ideas to frame my sermon this week. He said, The more I watch politicians and citizens destroying love and unity and truth to suit their agenda, the more I marvel at my king, the more I delight in his kingdom, the more I cherish his church. His kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is full of love, unity, and truth. It comes soon. I was a little bit discouraged. So one of our own elders texted me this week, though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. We need to marvel at the king. We need to see the beauty of Christ, the beauty of Christ. Why do Christians say that Christ is beautiful? Why do we say that his work is beautiful? Because at the cross, at the cross of Jesus Christ, we see the most wonderful and fitting display of God's love and his mercy and his justice and the forgiveness of sin. They all converge at the cross of Calvary. And it seems these days that you probably can't really count on common sense anymore. But if your mind is shaped by the grace of God in Jesus Christ and the truth of Scripture, you look at what God did in His Son and you say, that is beautiful. The Savior is beautiful. So listen to the words of John Calvin on this subject. He says, In the cross of Christ, as in a magnificent theater, the inestimable goodness of God is displayed before the whole world. In all the creatures, indeed, both high and low, the glory of God shines. But nowhere has it shone more brightly than in the cross, in which there has been an astonishing change of things. The condemnation of all men has been manifested. Sin has been blotted out. Salvation has been restored to men. And in short, the whole world has been renewed and everything restored to good order. Calvin says that having a very acute sense of the brokenness of this world. He says, because of of the cross of Christ, not only is salvation beautiful, but God has renewed and made new through the work of his Son. He did not do things just for himself, Jesus. He did not lay claim to things outside of his Father's will. He had made it all, and he humbled himself to ride into Jerusalem on a cloaked colt knowing where he was going, to die for sinners. In a world of power grabs and tyranny, of brokenness and betrayal, of abuse and scandal and exploitation, and people taking advantage of the weak and helpless and taking human life into their own hands, you need to marvel at the king. You need to marvel at the king. You need to delight in his kingdom. Do you see how antithetical the kingdom of God is to every other kingdom? Do you see how transcendent it is above the other kingdoms of this world. It may be hard for us to, to grasp the implications of this, in our, in our, especially in our modern age. We've been blessed to live in a land where uh, our, our government is structured to, to battle against tyranny, to, to keep tyranny suppressed down. That's why it often seems like our government is doing nothing because it's this constant stalemate. But even still in our world, we see the lust for power. We've seen it in recent times. So we delight in the kingdom of grace and glory. We delight in the kingdom that follows the king in his way of humility. If you want to understand the kingdom, keep your eyes on the king. What did Jesus do? Lustful grab for power or laying it down so that he 
through his own hurt, might redeem lost and broken sinners. Third, cherish the church. And we cherish the church because the church is the kingdom of God on this earth. The church is the kingdom of God of the people who have been washed and renewed. The people of God who who stand as his assembly on the earth, seeking to live like the king. Knowing that what we do is not our own salvation, that what we do never becomes the work uh, before God, which, which uh, leg- legitimizes our standing before God, but we do it out of thankfulness and gratitude. And I believe particularly as Reformed and confessional Christians, those who, who treasure these deep and meaningful truths that come to us from our past. We are especially equipped to cherish the church amidst a changing world where we see virtue and truth abandoned more and more. One person says about the Reformed in this country, says, we have been a marginal and minority interest in America for well over a century. Therefore, we do not face the loss of social influence and political aspirations that now confront evangelicalism and Roman Catholicism. We do not expect to be at the center of worldly affairs. We do not imagine ourselves to be running indispensable institutions. Lack of a major role in the public square will cause no crisis in self-understanding. And he goes on to say why it is so important that we do what we do is that we, we lean into the simplicity of our worship and have clarity and focus on the training of the word of God and the glories of the gospel. And gathering around the exposition of the Bible and and, uh, the wonders that we see in our catechisms and passing on truth from generation to generation as we gather together and around our dinner tables as well. We need to be the kind of people that say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, When these people see Jesus riding into Jerusalem, that's what they say. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's from Psalm 118. We sang that at the beginning of the service this morning. They, the, the disciples of Jesus, think they know what's going to happen. They really have no idea what Jesus is about to do. But we echo that refrain because we stay on this side of the cross in the resurrection and we understand, we know that Jesus knew what was going to happen. He knew what was going to happen to him. So when we say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, do we speak with the heartfelt joy and the love of the Savior? that we ought to have when we keep in mind the price that he paid? Do we marvel at the king? Do we delight in his kingdom? And do we cherish the church? As we close, he is the Savior. He is the Savior. Jesus has shown them who he is. And it says at once, as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, it's like everyone is flooded with the memories of all that he has done. All the signs that he has performed, they, they realize and they understand he is the Messiah. It's undeniable. Look at all of the things that he has done. Look at all the wonders he has wrought. And so they say, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. If you're paying attention, remember all the way back to chapter 2, where the angels are singing when Jesus comes to earth. They say, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. In chapter 2, the angels are rejoicing because of peace on earth because God's son has come to earth. The language is reversed here. The language is reversed here and the disciples don't fully grasp what's going on, but they communicate something very important to us. Peace in heaven and peace on earth. It's reversed. It's now peace in heaven. Calvin says, we know that there is no other way 
in which wretched souls find rest in the world than by God reconciling himself to them out of heaven. Peace in heaven and peace on earth. Jesus has shown us in this gospel what he means by both of those terms. How, how are peace in heaven and peace on earth achieved? Only by human beings being reconciled to the God of heaven as Jesus comes to save sinners. He did not come as a social activist, as a political revolutionary, as the leader and organizer of an international NGO. He came to save us from our sins. And that's what he does fully and finally and perfectly. God can only do things perfectly. If Christ came to make us happy and get rid of our sickness and despair, he did not succeed. He came to give us peace with God and eternal life and to rid us of sickness and despair in the age to come. And for that, he is worthy of praise. He is worthy of praise. The Pharisees say, Jesus, rebuke your disciples. Because they know what they know what they're the, the Pharisees know what the disciples of Jesus are doing. They say, Rebuke your disciples. Don't accept this worship. Jesus says, if they were silent, the stones would cry out. He's the Lord of Lords. He came down from heaven's glory. And he walked through this earth, this earth which he had made. Behold the king in his beauty. Behold the work of the Savior. Look, ye saints, the sight is glorious. See the man of sorrows now. From the fight returned victorious. Every knee to him shall bow. Crown him, crown him. Crowns become the victor's brow. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you. You are God, Father, Son, and Spirit who is worthy of praise. Father, these truths, impress them upon our minds. May they sink down into our hearts to shape our affections, orient our wills to be people who delight to live for you in gratitude for what you have done. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we sing number 299.